Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Sudan's military interim government not willing to hand over power to civilian rule and political parties in South Africa wind up their final campaign rallies ahead of Wednesday's polls. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The Deputy President of South African Opposition Pan-Africanist Congress Party, Mzwanele Nyonzo, says his party has been consistent in the fight for the return of land to the majority in the country. He was addressing party members during the party's final rally in the Eastern Cape Province. Nyonzo has accused the major political parties such as the ANC, DA and EFF of lacking the political will to tackle the land issue. They are all fakes, they are all chatteries, they will never return our land. They are all sellouts, they are all agents, because they are funded by one boss and that boss is white. They will never return our land. We must vote for PAC and punish ANC thieves. Orlando Stadium in Soweto was a sea of red as the opposition EFF leader Julius Malema urged thousands of party supporters to help fight what he terms economic apartheid. Malema said education and employment were key, not social handouts. Why do they hate black people so much? They are charging us more. When we apply for a bond, less than what they are charging white people. Comrades, why are the farm owners white people only? When we say economic freedom, we mean that black people will own productive farms. Meanwhile, the leader of the Good Party, Patricia DeLille, says she will continue to fight for the integration of the people of Cape Town in South Africa's Western Cape Province, who are forcibly removed from the areas under the Apartheid Government's Grouped Areas Act. She wrapped up her election campaign in the Cape Town CBD. She says the fights with the opposition DA when she was still a member started after the party refused to support the idea of making land available for suitable, affordable housing. DeLille says she will will continue to fight against what she calls special injustice. We come here today to illustrate what is possible, what can we do to integrate our city. I think as all leaders around the country, we have failed to integrate our cities and towns. And I just became more determined when I traveled around the country in all nine provinces and see apartheid spatial planning is still alive and well. 
Recent fighting in southern Tripoli in Libya has killed 187 people and wounded 1,157. Head of the Government Forces Field Medical Center, Tariq al-Hamshiri, says the government has also transferred a number of the wounded to Tunisia, Turkey, Italy and Ukraine for medical treatment. The offensive launched by eastern Libya-based military commander Khalifa Haftar to take control of the capital Tripoli is now in its fifth week. The UN-backed government of national the court, the GNA in Tripoli, issued a statement on Saturday recognizing 710 fighters killed in Libya's civil war in 2014. In a move, a Tripoli government source said was aimed at winning the backing of forces in nearby Zintan in the fight against Haftar. And finally, at least 41 people are now known to have died after a Russian plane made an emergency landing and burst into flames at an airport in Moscow. Videos on social media show passengers using emergency exit slides to escape the burning Aeroflot aircraft. Survivors have suggested the plane which was travelling to Mermanisk was, travel- was struck by lightning before turning back to Moscow. The jet was carrying 78 passengers and 5 crew. The BBC Steve Rosenberg reports. The emergency services were there pretty quickly. The inflatable chute, the inflatable slide opened at the front of the plane and some of the passengers were able to get off. But I think the biggest problem was at the back of the plane. That's where the fire was strongest and where it seems many of the victims were. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 as well as www.channelafrica.co.za. Now, South Africa's political parties over the weekend were campaigning around the country in their final rallies ahead of Wednesday's general elections on May the 8th. The Independent Electoral Commission says it's all systems go for the elections and have called on parties, candidates and the public to help ensure a free and fair election. To elaborate further on the IEC state of readiness, we are now joined on the line by IEC Vice Chairperson Commissioner Janet Love. Good morning, Janet, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and to you and your listeners. This must be very exciting time and very hectic time for you. Um, elections voting for you generally is starting today with the special vote. Talk to us about that and the readiness. Well, um, the, the issue of the special votes is that um, there are a number of South Africans who uh, either because they are not well or because they um, have disabilities or are infirm, who find it very difficult to get to the voting stations. And before the election, they make an application to indicate that they would need 
um, support from the IEC in the form of home visits, and then those home visits um, enable them uh, to be visited by teams from the IEC in the in the um, with party agents um, as well. Um, in order to enable them to vote. There's a second category of South Africans who, for various reasons, um, know that they will find themselves out of their provinces on voting day on on, um, the 8th. And as a consequence, ask for the opportunity to vote in their province uh, on one of the special voting days so that they are able not um, to to cost both their provincial and, and national votes. Now, you have to make an application in advance, and over 700,000 South Africans have done this. And once we have those um, applications, we then process them in a manner that is um, in a a consultation with the political parties so that they can also uh, arrange their their party agents to be able to uh, monitor the process but also so that we have adequate capacity and we have adequate routes and we have a proper dissemination of materials for purposes of voting so that this um, very large-scale process throughout the country can unfold um, in a a very organized way. At this stage, we um, have been uh, getting in confirmations from our different um, provinces to indicate that um, everything is um, on schedule, that the um, uh, teams that have gone out uh, for the first round of um, the home visits are already, um, uh, you know, on the way with cars packed and and the like, um, and obviously having the necessary support from the security establishment as well. So that's where we are. Um, are polling stations open this morning already for um, the special votes? So um, polling stations on these two days will open at 9 o'clock in the morning and will close at 5 o'clock. Um, so when you ask me are they open already, I have no doubt that um, all of the presiding officers and staff are very busy setting things up and getting themselves organized, but they will only open at 9. The call for parties, candidates, and the public at large to help ensure a free and fair election. Do you think this is being heeded by all South Africans and participants in the vote? Look, we we, um, are urging people to remind themselves that the democracy that is um, underpinned by our electoral process is a responsibility that we all share because it is what is making our democracy possible in this country. So those responsibilities are at every level. It's the responsibility of citizens who clearly have got many other issues that they would like to put forward to have an understanding of the importance to suspend a lot of those issues to enable people to have a different form of freedom of expression if they would uh, to be able to exercise their vote as they see fit. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are employers. Um, employers, particularly in, 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 in um, retail sectors and, and in more far-flung areas, who need to also be reminded that it is absolutely essential for them to allow their um, employees to, make, um, uh, to, to take up their right 
to vote. They must be given the opportunity to do that. And part of the, um, the, the call is also, of course, to South Africans not just to um, not uh, obstruct and prevent, but also to encourage all of those who are registered to go and cast and exercise their vote. So it's the three things. It's calling on people to recognize that this is a joint responsibility, that issues that they have that are, they are very passionate about and we are absolutely clear is important for them to have resolved. Some of that needs to be suspended to enable people to exercise their right to vote. The second is that people must be given that opportunity if they're employed to go and vote. And the third thing is to say, please bring out everybody in their numbers to our polling stations. Now, Janet, we've seen over the years, just speaking of uh, some industries where people are generally not given a chance to go and vote, because if you look at the time, um, normally at retail stores and shopping centers, um, they'll close probably, say, on a public holiday, so around six o'clock. And by the time um, individuals get to the polling stations, they're so exhausted, they don't even want to think about it and want to, want to go straight home. What contingency measures or what plans plans do you have going forward in dealing with, especially in, in the retail sector? And we've heard, we heard uh, in uh, the, the, one of the parties or some of the parties calling on farmers to let their farm workers go to cast their ballot. What needs to be done to ensure that people who are employed in these uh, sort of industries are given the opportunity to access their right and go and vote within time? I think there are a couple of things. Firstly, when it comes to the agricultural sector, we have been engaging over um, a considerable period of time in different provinces with um, organized um, agricultural employers. And we believe that, um, and we hope there are no exceptions, but we believe that there is um, a very strong understanding of the importance of enabling um, people who are working uh, on farms to have access uh, to the opportunity to vote. And we are just, again, reminding uh, people who are in positions on the farms that this is uh, an obligation in terms of the law. And we really are hoping that um, there will be maximum cooperation and not a single exception. When it comes to retail stores, look, um, uh, first of all, we've engaged as well with um, business, organized business um, institutions and we have had a lot of assurances, and we hope that those will cascade to um, all of the different components of the retail sector. We do want to remind both um, uh, employers as well as employees that in this particular election, which is a national and provincial election as opposed to a local election, if it is the case that you have people who are working some distance away from where they live in, but in, still in the same province, it is possible for people to approach a voting station within the province that they are living, but which is nearer to their place of work than possibly their normal voting station, and still to go in to cast both the national and provincial ballots. 
Now, Janet, uh, let's speak about the issue of uh, the SADC electoral observation missions um, who came into the country and uh, were seemingly afraid to go to certain areas that were um, labelled no-go areas where um, the International Relations Department had to step in to say there is no such thing in South Africa. Talk to us about that. We heard yesterday at one of the um, rallies, I think it was the EFF rally, where um, Former president of Nigeria, good luck, Jonathan, was present at that rally. Talk to us about the um, emissions, um, observation missions mandate and what their reaction has been so far since being in the country. Um, so, I, I, first of all, I can only um, endorse the, the um, indication that has been given by the Department of International Relations that there are no-go areas and it is completely, um, you know, a flagrant violation of our legislation to try and um, create no-go areas. Um, at the same time, obviously, there are concerns um, that uh, in the build-up and, and as part of the campaigning, as we know, there have been um, uh, actual instances of people is, uh, is protesting and Again, that is obviously in our country um, a right that people have. But, you know, there are, are actions that have been carried out in the context of protests that have made people, certainly who are coming from other parts of uh, the world and our continent, somewhat nervous. And we believe that um, it has been made clear to them, as well as obviously to people who are protesting, that for purposes of elections, there is really... Um, as I indicated earlier, and importance to uh, recognize that our law provides quite unambiguously that the work of the Electoral Commission cannot be obstructed. So um, I think that that's given some assurance. The second issue is that there have been incidents of um, uh, violations of the rights of people who are not South African citizens but who are within our country, and unfortunately this is often directed um, against nationals of countries within our continent. And um, that kind of uh, antagonism and xenophobia is something that I think we all know has been reported widely on our continent, and so that does give concerns. I think that the presence of um, some of our international observers at rallies um, in a manner that gives them the opportunity to be well informed about what our political parties are saying in a way that their own rights are also not violated, it's hugely important. And I think it's something that we are very grateful for, that um, these observers have had that opportunity to, uh, to experience our democracy and our country in that way. Their mandate is really to... Um, be able to uh, observe what takes place uh, in the build-up to elections, in the campaigning period, while elections are being implemented, and of course in terms of results collation. And then to give us their feedback. What have they seen? What are the concerns that they've noted themselves but also picked up from others? And to share with us um, some suggestions as well as experiences that we could learn from from their countries. So that is what their mandate is.
Very quickly, just uh, just in wrapping up, in terms of uh, the voting that is going to be taking place on May the 8th, as well as today and tomorrow, um, any s- process with regards to the ballot paper is massive. We've seen there's 48 uh, parties on that ballot paper, and it looks very long from what we've seen on the International um, um, Voting Day where um, you know expatriates were voting on that special vote. What needs to? What do voters need to bring to the polling station? Do they need to bring their ID document? What's the process going forward? So the voters need to bring their, their their ID documents, which can be the green barcoded ID, or it can be the smart card ID, or it can be a valid temporary ID. Those those are the only documents that um, uh, people need to bring with them. If that includes people um, who maybe need to update their addresses. Um, if they do not need to bring any proof of address. They need to be able, before they are issued with any ballot, they need to be able to um, give their uh, full address details first. Those will then be captured. It will be confirmed which um, area uh, voting station Traditionally, they would be part of, but most importantly for these elections, it will be confirmed that they are in the correct province so that they can be issued with a provincial ballot paper as well as a national ballot paper, assuming that they have their IDs. So that's what people need to bring, one of those three IDs and themselves, and then the process can unfold. With regard to the longer ballot, the national ballot, and of course all the provincial ballots are also longer, but not as long as the national ballot. Um, we believe that, um, you know, that we've, we've kept a format that will simply mean that people have a longer piece of paper to mark and will need to um, uh, uh, just be uh, going through it with maybe a little more time. From our point of view, what it has meant is that we need to have additional ballot boxes and additional facilities because the ballot boxes will fill up um, more quickly and those arrangements have been put in place. Voting stations close at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, the 8th of May, that's election day. And talk to us about uh, the final count and the results that will be released. When will the results be, should be expected to be released? Okay, so just a quick one. Voting stations open at 7 uh, on, on the 8th of May and close at 9. And anybody who is in the queue uh, uh, by 9 o'clock will be attended to. When it comes to the process of um, results collation, um, the, uh, once the voting station is closed, after all of those who are in the queue by 9 o'clock have been attended to, the voting, um, the counting and the sorting and the counting of the ballots takes place within the voting station. The results slip of each voting station is then, um, all of that is done in the presence of party agents, um, and, of course, any observers who are able to make themselves available. Once that counting is done, that votes, um, that um, results that is signed, it is then we encourage at that stage, after um, completion of the process, there can be no use of phones while the process is unfolding, but after completion of the process, we also encourage party agents to take photographs of those results slips. Those results slips are then taken to our um, uh, regional centers and in the in those centers they are then captured in um, in a in a dual system 
so that you have two people capturing the same slip without knowing what one another is doing so that we can ensure that we get um, as uh, um, accurate a capturing as possible. But before it's entered into the system, it is then independently audited. Once that happens, it enters into the system. And of course, party agents will have circulated and forwarded the, the information that they were able to uh, take photographs of at their voting stations to their parties. So there is the additional oversight of how things are captured in the system. Once they're captured in the system and they go through to our results center, they go through to those centers um, at, at a, at, at a time in, in a manner that makes a simultaneous transmission into the centers as well as to people uh, in the media through our automatic feed. Janet, all the best for the selection process, and I think it's going to be a very hectic week for you and your team, and uh, we look forward to casting our ballots. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That is uh, IEC Vice Chairperson Commissioner Janet Love joining us there um, with an update of uh, the elections taking place in South Africa with special votes today and tomorrow and Election Day, May the 8th. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Again. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, Sudan is in the middle of a revolution. Protesters who deposed former President Omar al-Bashir, who ruled for over 30 years, want a civilian-led government. According to Sudan's military council, it says it will not allow civilians a majority on the Supreme Council set to rule the country during a transitional period. Protest leaders have accused the military of not negotiating in good faith and promoting the interests of Bashir. For the latest, we are now joined on the line by Sabir Ibrahim, a representative of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement here in South Africa. Sabir, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and good morning to you and good morning to the listener. What's the political situation currently in Sudan and who is currently in charge? Well, that is a very difficult question to answer, you know, really, because it's, 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 um, any groups is, is confined themselves with their own uh, conditions and agendas. And the military council um, that, 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 that trying to push uh, the protester to accept half victory, you know, which is no nobody accepted half victory that... Uh, they're insisting that they want to be controlling the Sudan. You see, like, well, they, they want to change Bashir with the second Bashir, you know. So we say that, no, the military has to, to, to confine themselves with their own duties to protect the countries, you know, not to rule. 
So that is the situation. And, and the protesters also they're insisting in their condition, you know, say, no, we, we, we lost many and we are here. Yes, we need transformation, civilian transformations, you know. Now, we've seen over the years that uh, the very military that is, um, you know, in power in this transitional council currently um, has been the same military that was protecting President, uh, former President Omar al-Bashir. Now, they're saying that they will not accept civilian majority power sharing a council to be set up. Why is this the case? Well, yeah, it's, it's very tricky, you know. They excuse us saying that the military... Uh, the militaries, the military council justify holding this executive board in Sudan because of it will provide order and security. You see, that's order and security. But the hidden agenda that, you know, to protect the Bashirs and, and the alliance of Bashir because they were part and parcel of Bashir itself. So if they lost the power, then the Bashirs will be tried, the other people, they lost their positions, all that kind. So they need to create Bashir, parallel Bashir. You know what I'm saying? They excusing and justifying that, saying that the security is issue of security and order. Security and order have got nothing to do with the executives. So now, it, protest it, it, leaders. Sorry, Sabir, just coming in there. Um, protest leaders have accused the military of not negotiating in good faith and promoting the interests of Bashir. Is there any truth to these accusations? Well, the, the thing is that you know, up to now we didn't know why. It's because uh, we have never come across with any revolution that's not arresting people or pushing, putting people in the trial. Nobody knows. Even we have never even seen a picture of Bashiris in prison. We have never even seen the, the alliance, the security is still in place. Those people who kill our innocent people is still in place. The executive, all the the ministers also that is still in place. They didn't. So the situation is as it's set a coup. Nothing happening. Nothing changed practically. So that's why it's created us to see that, you know, this is just the one to get rid of Bashir as an individual, but they keep the system as it is. Where exactly is uh, Omar al-Bashir? Nobody knows. They have the reports of um, coming from the military council itself stating that Bashir is in um, the main prison where political prisoners are held. Ha- have these been confirmed or, as you mentioned, you haven't seen any photos or any footage? Nobody, of- nobody knows where is he, you know. It's just telling lies, you know. They're telling, no, today is here, they're moving from here. We, you see, if, if there is a true revolution, you could show that, you know, this, this is a pol- political prisoner. What I'm saying, no, any journalist, internationally and locally, have not shot that the Bashir is in prison or his alliance in prison. Now, what's the way forward, uh, Sabir? What are the protest leaders looking for? And what can be done to ensure that what was fought for in in toppling Omar al-Bashir is achieved? Well, you see that the, there is a many negotiations going on nowadays, uh, and and there is also uh, mediators here and there from outside and from inside uh, to bridge the gap between the between the protesters uh, and the oppositions and uh, and the genters. And but the situation is for me to look that you know it is like a, a recipe of uh, a, a new coup, military coup. You see, counter revolution is coming in now. And we don't know. I'm saying to you, it's difficult to predict what is happening tomorrow for Sudan because they, they sit in now under control. The protesters say, no, we are here, we are not moving anywhere. And in fact, they transform the area of the sit-in become a space, a space of arts and museum and, and creating sort of uh, back-ins to the area. 
So situation is, is like, um, uh, I, I can say, it's standstill, you know, where nobody, nobody knows what is tomorrow happening. Negotiation here and the condition here, and the military is imposing. And now, day by day, by the way, they empower themselves from the external factors, because the external, you see, there's uh, some countries that are supporting the militaries, because they are interested to see that system is in place. So the situation is difficult to predict. Absolutely difficult to predict. What can break the deadlock? Only the, the, the people have to take off something, you know. The military have to trade that, you know. They have to know that, you know, their position should be to order and security based on and on the on the condition of the militaries. If you are military, you have to protect the people. But to rule, nobody accept it. We don't need. We have 30 years. It's enough from the militaries. We are never ever accept military rule again. Otherwise, we go back to the war. Sabir, we'll leave it there for now. It is a developing story that we'll all be watching very closely. That is Sabir Ibrahim, a representative of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement here in South Africa, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Nosile Zuma. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. South Africa's Electoral Commission says special votes will only be extended to those voters who have applied. The leader of South Africa's opposition, EFF, Julius Malema, says it's a shame that 25 years into democracy, there is still a substantial number of people with disabilities who live in shacks. And the United Nations says it has gained access to to vital food aid in Yemen eight months after fighting between government forces and Hutu rebels prevented it from doing so. Catch your full bulletin at 9. A member of Sudan's ruling military council has told the BBC that the armed forces will not accept a civilian majority on an interim power-sharing council. General Salah Abdel Khaleq said that was the red line he would perhaps go as far as equal representation, but no further. He says the military council is still needed to ensure stability. The BBC's James Copnell filed this report. The thing they really want to avoid is being in a minority in that Supreme Council, which would be a sort of presidential body, in effect, replacing a head of state. They know that if they're in the minority, if the civilians hold the upper hand, they would essentially have been written out of power, and they want to avoid that at any cost. So as well as saying, well, look, you know, maybe we'd accept um, half and half, something like that, um, the military are also playing up the possible risks of chaos if they're not involved. They say they need a steady hand on the tiller, that they need a military presence. They're warning about the chaos that neighboring countries like Libya and Somalia have seen. Now, my suspicion is that won't scare the protesters too much, and they're pretty adamant that they want a civilian majority, that the government, the Supreme Council above the government, must be dominated by civilians. To a spokesperson for the Sudan Professionals Association, that sort of trade union body that has been really leading these protests and is one of the major figures in the negotiations uh, against, uh, or with rather, the military council. Um, so the spokesperson is called Amjad Farid. Uh, his quote was, this just shows that the military doesn't understand uh, the nature of civilian government. Uh, he said that uh, in any civilian uh, government, the military should be under the civilians. It's uh, the civilian 
civilians who should um, take the decisions um, and that the military has a role to play within a Sudanese government, of course, as a major component of society, but it should be the civilians who are in control. So essentially, um, the civilian uh, negotiators are saying they need to have the majority on that Supreme Council. We already know that both military and civilians have agreed that the government um, will be uh, a technocrat government composed not of the military or of major politicians. The protesters want to see proof that Omar al-Bashir is in prison, that these things are actually happening. There's been no uh, physical evidence. They've been told that Mr. Bashir is in Koba prison here in Khartoum, but they haven't seen him. So there'll be a degree of skepticism until uh, they actually see him. Uh, I think the other thing to point out here is that uh, going after the former president on corruption grounds is one thing. Uh, it will be a much more radical move for the military council to go after him for alleged human rights abuses because of course Mr. Bashir has been indicted by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes, crimes against humanity, even genocide uh, committed in Darfur. He's denied those charges in the past. The Transitional Military Council could open up war crimes, human rights abuses type uh, accusations against Mr. Bashir, but they themselves might be implicated uh, in, in similar uh, events. And so they're not doing that. They're concentrating on the corruption, which is something that might assuage public opinion, but wouldn't put them in danger. That report by the BBC's James Copnell in Khartoum, Sudan. South Africa's ruling African National Congress has asked citizens to renew its mandate when they go to the polls on Wednesday. Its president, Sil Ramaphosa, says they want to build on progress they have made over the past 25 years. He was speaking at the ANC's Siangoba rally at the Ellis Park Stadium in Johannesburg. Ramaphosa had since apologized for all the mistakes they have made along the way and promised to work selflessly to improve the lives of ordinary South Africans. Ndeba Mugoba reports. The traditional Siangoba rally was always going to be a show of strength by the governing party. Its supporters filled up the 62-seater Ellis Park Stadium to the rafters, while the adjacent Johannesburg Stadium with a capacity of 37,000 people was used as an overflow. President Cyril Ramaphosa arrived to a thunderous applause, and his message was simple. He pleaded with South Africans to give the ANC another chance on Wednesday. Today is a call to action to the people of South Africa to join us on the journey of hope and renewal. It is a call to every South African to go to the voting station and cast your vote. Although the ballot paper is very long, it is easy to find the African National Congress. And that you will see as number four on the national ballot paper. And that will be number two two or three on the provincial ballot paper because we are saying first ballot paper vote ANC second ballot paper vote ANC it was a final push for votes in these hotly contested elections and president Ramaphosa said theirs is not a trial and error game reminding all in sundry that governance is different from wishful thinking the ANC is not a government in waiting we are the government today others are saying they are waiting to be in government we are the government others talk we do others scream we build houses Others criticize, we provide water to our people. Others make false 
promises we build clinics and hospitals. Others want to create jobs, we create jobs. Others jump on rooftops, we are the ones who provide ARVs for those who are living with HIV. He said they've accepted all the mistakes they've committed in the last 25 years and are now ready to diligently serve South Africa. Where we have been found wanting, we accept the criticism that is being leveled against us. We admit that we have made mistakes, and we put ourselves before our people and say, yes, we have made mistakes, but it is only those who are doing nothing who don't make mistakes. And we say, unequivocally, we are ready to serve the people of South Africa. The president also promised half actions against wrongdoers. Let us declare here and now that we will never surrender our freedom to corruption and state capture. Let us declare here and now that we will not submit, that we will fight with every means at our disposal to ensure that those who occupy positions of authority serve only the public interest and our people, not their own pockets and not themselves. And his plea for votes was accepted by those in attendance. We all need to support ANC. And ANC is a liberation that we fight for our greens and we can never deny it's a mistake there and there but we still have a big hope on that even on 8 may and i wish everybody to vote anc come 8 may anc will win we'll get more than 60 percent voters anc has done many things for us south african even though they've done their mistake i believe in mr Ramaphosa that will fix our country i trust him at least 48 political party leaders are vying for the country's top job on wednesday's elections and with the campaigns winding up, the electorate would be the final abita comes Wednesday. I am Tebo Mokobo in Johannesburg. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa. Economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema says South Africa needs young men and women who will be in the forefront in assisting the country realize economic emancipation for all. He was addressing thousands of EFF supporters gathered for the Telatupa rally at Orlando Stadium in Soweto on Sunday. Malema says an educated society will be able to prosper through a dialogue and equity share of the country's wealth between the rich and the poor. Abongile Dumako reports. My grandmother would have wanted me to be here. She knew that today I will not be with her, but I will be with you. And she left me in the good hands of the ground forces of the EFF. EFF leader Julius Malema giving a passionate farewell tribute to his late grandmother, 
Sarah at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto. He says his grandmother was a pillar of strength to the Malema family. Malema was addressing thousands of EFF supporters attending the Tsela Tuba rally, which was the last one before the elections on Wednesday. Julius Malema says a free South Africa can only be realized if all people living with disabilities have access to basic services, including decent housing. He says it's a shame that 25 years into democracy, there is still a substantial number of people living with disabilities who still stay in shacks. We know all disabled people. They are all having disability money. Disability money must go hand in hand with the RTP house. All, all disabled people in South Africa, literally in this country, all of them, not a single one of them, should stay without a house. EFF leader Julius Malema says his party will never drive white people to the sea, but adds that they must share their country's wealth with their black counterparts. Malema says the country's wealth belongs to all South Africans. In the EFF, we don't send whites to the sea. We have a problem with all white people who are yours to be bosses, who are yours to collect our mothers and fathers, boys and girls. But the young white people don't be like your parents. Do away with that attitude. EFF supporters who gathered at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto say they will continue to support the party and Malema. Many say they want jobs and expropriation of land without compensation. This whole South Africa will be ours. You know, it's in our hands because the land is ours. Yes, 100%. I know that Malema will do whatever we want. No, I expect him to, to tell us something that we've always long for. We want service delivery. We want uh, jobs. Now the baton lies with the voter to decide whether or not Malima's words to South Africans find resonance and subsequently end him the much-needed vote on Wednesday. I'm Abongile Dumago in Soweto. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has appointed John Manguja for a second and final five-year term as a central bank governor. Manguja was first appointed to the post in 2014, but his term was marred by the bank's decision to introduce the surrogate bond note currency two years later in a bid to end a severe shortage of U.S. dollars and cash. Manguja's appointment had been largely expected after Mnangagwa spokesperson George Sharamba said the governor would get a second term. 
South African Telecom's firm MTN has applied with Nigeria's security regulator to list shares in its local unit on the country's bourse. Nigeria is the biggest market for Africa's largest telecom firm with 52.3 million users in 2017 and accounts for a third of the company's annual core profit. However, it has proven problematic in recent years. U.S. President Donald Trump says he plans to raise the tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. He has tweeted that tariffs of 10% on certain goods would rise to 25% on Friday. Trump says that the move is due to talks on a U.S.-China trade deal moving too slowly. The BBC's Chris Barkley reports. Looking at this, it seems like the president's patience has completely run out. We have this tweet explicitly stating that the tariffs will go up to 25% on Friday and that goods totaling $325 billion, not currently subject to tariffs, will face the same export taxes in the future. And I think a key line for his frustration seems to be the suggestion that they feel things are moving too slowly because, in his words, the Chinese are attempting to renegotiate. Kenya's animal feed manufacturers will get 300,000 bags of maize from the Strategic Food Reserve to ease a shortage and lower retail prices. The Ministry of Agriculture agreed with the manufacturers last week that it will issue them with the consignment of grade 4 maize held at different depots across the country to tame the rising cost of feeds that has hit a three-year high. The move, which has been welcomed by the Association of Kenya Feeds Manufacturers, is, however, expected to give temporary relief. The Namibia Chamber of Commerce and Industry has challenged authorities to have innovative economic development strategies to raise the development agenda during the current economic challenges facing the country. The Chamber also urged the government to provide indications of what measures it's taking to address the economic challenges that the country faces with, with clear timelines so that the masses can gain confidence and harbor hopes of economic recovery. The US dollar is trading at 359.3 Nigerian Nara. 1064 Botswana Pula, 99.79 Zambian Kwacha, or rather Kenyan Shilling, and 12.90 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 393 Brazilian roll, 65.5 Russian ruble, 69.7 Indian rupee, 673 Chinese yuan, and 14.34 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Commodities gold $1,282, platinum $858 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $69.33 a barrel. Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with uh, athletics news. Casta Siminya of South Africa and Nigel Amos of Botswana had a cracking start, winning their respective 800-meter races in the opening leg of the Diamond League Series at the Kalimfa International Stadium in Doha in Qatar, which will host this year's World Championships in September. Our correspondent, Keshem Nyati, reports. Yeah, we played the finals against Uganda. We managed to beat them in five innings, uh, 27 Zero is the score, I think. Yeah, that was the score. And, um, yeah, I think my team, uh, we defended well. And we, when we had an opportunity to, to hit, we hit well. And, I mean, uh, the guys hit the ball well today. And uh, we scored this, as much runs as we could to win the game within five innings. I think today, uh, because it was a final, um, you know, we had to come up with all the, the, the right result. We had to come up with the right result. We also had to, you know, play well because Uganda was going to be better um, than uh, the day that we played them early in the week. So we had to be prepared to play them, uh, you know, and that they were going to be better. And I think my guys just showed up and, you know, produced uh, a quality ball game, you know, and just what we wanted from them. They went out there and did their job. It was great. It was great to see. That is uh, the coach of the South Africa's national baseball team uh, that beat Uganda 27-0 in five innings, uh, Neil Adonis. Now, going back to Casta Semenya of South Africa and Nigel Amos, uh, who took part in the 800-meter races uh, at the Diamond League in, Daha, in Doha in Qatar. Here's uh, Geshem Nyati reporting. My name is Luvo Manyonga. I'm a South African athlete, a long jumper. I just want to say to my ladies, my tough ladies, my rocks, to just go out there and show the world who they are. And I really appreciate the invite and to show South Africa first that we behind our ladies. They must know that we 100% behind them. We must just go there and wave our flag and make our, our country proud. And in tennis news. Top seed Stefanos Tsitsipas defeated Pablo Cuevas 6-3-7-6-7-4 tie to win the Estoril tournament last night, giving Greece a second tennis title of the weekend after Maria Sakari won in Rabat. The 20-year-old Tsitsipas claimed a third career crown after lifting trophies in Stockholm last October and Marseille in February and is expected to rise to nine in the world today. Uruguay's Cuevas, 33, made the final as a lucky loser, having originally lost in qualifying last weekend. On Saturday, Sakari had claimed her maiden WTA title with a 2-6-6-4-6-1 win over Britain's Johanna Conta in the Rabat Clay Court final. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Sudan's military interim government not willing to hand over power to civilian rule and political parties in South Africa wind up their final campaign rallies ahead of Wednesday's polls. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Mswewu, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on plus 277 3300627305.